0: Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. And uh, I'm hoping and praying that you are experiencing a blessed Christmas season. The season, uh, from a Catholic perspective, uh, expands a lot longer than it it did, at least in my own understanding, when I was uh, a Protestant. Uh, I always thought about Christmas and then what was afterwards was, uh, you know, gathering all the, the uh, wrappings and f- stuffing them into a bag and throwing them out and then thinking about, uh, you know, moving on with life, focusing on New Year's and, and moving past. But here we are. Uh, that's behind us. We're in a new year, but yet we're still focusing our lives on the change that has happened to us as a result of the incarnation of God coming into our world in the form of a baby uniqueness of a baby but not only that but coming into our world in the midst of the family in the midst of marriage and on this program each week we look at different scriptures and I invite my guests to choose verses that either they never saw something that awakened them or particular scriptures that help them understand uniquely the beauty of of our faith, particularly within the context of our Catholic faith, understanding scripture within the um, uh, within the womb of the church, understanding scriptures within the traditions of the church. And I've invited a very fine uh, guest to join us today, Travis Lawmaster. He's joined me on my Journey Home program on EWTN. But he uh, is here to, on Deep in Scripture, and he's chosen a very interesting and very significant verse, actually a long section of Scripture. We obviously won't be able to cover everything in this one program, but we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses essentially 1 through 31, though I won't read all of those on on the radio. But we'll be dealing with this issue of marriage and celibacy in the context of husband and wife and the importance of this and how significant it is for our Understanding our calling in the eyes of God, and particularly understanding our surrender to Jesus Christ in terms of who each of us are as we seek to fulfill by grace that which God has called us to do, to live, each of us, as we stand individually. Though we're all a part of the the body of Christ, yet we each have an individual calling, and that's a part of what we'll be looking at today tell you a little bit about Travis. Travis Lawmaster is a seasoned Catholic lay minister with 20 years of ministry experience with youth and college students at campuses such as UCLA, University of Iowa, Franciscan University, and Rutgers University. Travis holds a history degree from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and a theology and Christian ministry degree from Franciscan University of Steubenville. He has also completed Further graduate work in biblical and mystical theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, and Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey, in preparation for his doctoral studies. Travis is the founder of a chastity and spirituality ministry called Love, Pure and True, which emphasizes the connection between chastity and the soul's journey toward union with God. He is a member of the secular order of Discalced Carmelites in Philadelphia, where he currently resides, although I think uh, this bio, Travis, is a bit, just a tad outdated, maybe when you come on in a moment, you can update us on that. But let me read you the scripture that we're looking at today. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 2, then 6 through 11, and 29 through 31, and then Travis will join us after the break to to talk about why this particular scripture uh, was the one that he chose for this program. This is Paul writing to the the Christians in Corinth. (laughs) Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I say this by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married I give charge, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. And then verse 29, I mean, brethren, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the form of this world is passing away. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network.
1: Do not forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern
0: Time.
2: If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdei's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow Him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll free at
0: 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm joined today by Travis Lawmaster. Hello, Travis. Are you there? Hello, Marcus. Thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Do, I'm wondering, do I need an update on your bio that I read earlier?
1: Uh, just the fact that over the holidays, I am unfortunately enjoying the warm weather of Southern California <laughs> before I have to head back. <laughs> to back the, to
0: Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, back to Philly. But other than that, uh, okay, pretty up to date.
0: From one coast to the other, right? Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you joining us on the program. I One thing I noted as I was... Uh, I have so many guests over the years on Journey home program, and sometimes I get them all mixed up uh, their backgrounds. and and uh, but I was, as I was reading your bio, I noticed that you've you've had uh, you know your graduate studies in uh, in theology, ministry, biblical, mystical theology. And what I noticed is that you you have some of that background, both from Catholic as well as Protestant. Yes. Uh, institution, So I'm I'm thinking that that probably was a very interesting formation for you.
1: Yeah. It, yes. It, it very much was. And um, I uh, part of, part of my training in, in scripture study in particular came at uh, what I think is one of the finest uh, you know Protestant institutions in the in the country for that is Fuller Theological yeah. Seminary in in Pasadena. And I had the privilege um, a few years ago of, of studying uh, Old Testament um, studies there with some, some, some very fine scholars. And a quick funny story there, Marcus, about, about Fuller. Yeah. Um, I was sitting in class, uh, my first day for Hebrew class at Fuller Seminary, and again, this is a primarily an evangelical right. Protestant uh, seminary. And you know, the bulk of the students there are... Training for some kind of pastoral work in mostly evangelical churches, you know, around the world. So, as a Catholic, and um, as I discussed on your Journey Home program, a revert uh, to the Catholic Church. Who had spent seven years in evangelical churches, I was, um, you know, I had uh, my foot, my feet on both sides of the fence in a way. You know, I, I was familiar with the where where most folks on campus were coming from, in their, uh, you know, in their theological framework. At the same time, I was. You know, I had now sort of crossed the Tiber, so to speak, and, um, you know, reentered the Catholic uh, Church. So while I was at Fuller, it was, just ex- it was an interesting experience just being a Catholic, you know, on campus. And um, in my first days there, I really assumed that I was maybe, maybe the only Catholic there. uh wasn't sure, but that was my presumption. Well, on that first day of class uh, in Hebrew, uh, we went around and introduced ourselves and where we were from, and a little bit about our background. And I had the opportunity to share and talk about how I had recently completed a Master's of Theology degree at Franciscan University, and uh, you mentioned some of my profs there, Scott Hahn and others. And We're going around the room, and then uh, this gentleman says, Well, I actually uh, studied in Ohio, too. And I looked over to him, and I realized uh, it was Michael Barber, who is very <laughs> active these days. Uh, <laughs> right. In, in Catholic ministry you know, with Scott Hahn and his ministry with St. Paul Institute. That's right. Well, hey, there's Michael, the old friend of mine from Franciscan. We kind of gave each other a knowing smile in the class. And we thought, well, that's kind of a coincidence that we ended up in the same class. Well, the class continues to introduce themselves. And in the row in front of us, a young lady says, Well, I studied at Franciscan also. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out she turns around and kind of smiles. And uh, her name was Kimberly. And I vaguely uh, had rem- remembered her uh, from Francis as well. Well, to make a long story short, Michael Kimberly and I became good friends at fuller we, uh, we talked about how you know how we saw a lot of the Catholic Church in you know in the, um, in the teachings of the evangelicals there, yes. and we talked about the differences as well but as it turned out, Michael and Kimberly became closer and closer and closer, and they ended up getting married. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, so Fuller Fuller was a matchmaker for them, and he's teaching scripture now at uh, John Paul the Great uh, University in San Diego. Kimberly's a great, great mom and partner for him down there. So, so uh, yeah, it, it's um, it's been an interesting journey for me with the scriptures in terms of I always tell people, you know, who are uh, who are. Well, especially people who are considering uh, becoming Catholic or perhaps leaving behind a more uh, evangelical Protestant, you know, experience for um, for a Catholic experience. Um, I I always remind them that my experience has been that um, I have not had to leave behind yeah. any of the good uh, that I have received from my Protestant experience. I've only uh, built on it uh, in, in my time as a Catholic.
0: You know, I, I, a story I've often told that I think this illustrates that is I was once visiting the old um, headquarters of Focus on the Family in, uh, in uh, outside of Denver and um, Colorado Springs. It was the old building, and it used to be a big gray glass tall building right across the street from the cathedral. And I happened to be standing on the front steps of the diocesan office in Colorado Springs. And when you're standing there, behind you is the cathedral, and over to the other side is the old gray glass building of Focus on the Family. And what was really interesting is that as you stood in that position and looked at Focus on the Family, they're reflected. In the gray glass, so focus on the family, was the entire Catholic cathedral. And it it just reminded me that that many non-faithful, non-Catholic Christians, like the school you're talking about or the seminary I went to, often don't realize how much of how they understand their faith and how much they understand Scripture actually came from the Catholic Church. they are just right. oblivious to that. And as you said, when you come back to the church, much of what you're bringing with you was Catholic in the first place. You didn't even realize it in terms of how we interpret Scripture. Now, the passage you've chosen uh, is interesting. It's not one I would have normally thought about choosing for this particular program, but I think it's a fascinating one. Maybe begin by just mentioning kind of in general, without going into detail with the passage to the audience, why this particular passage is important to you
1: well uh tying it to what you said uh, at the top of the broadcast Marcus about the holy season that we're in right now mm-hmm. of Christmas and the incarnation of our Lord I believe that this this passage in particular gives us a, a special you know just look into into Saint Paul's you know deep conviction that the incarnation of of our God you know in, in the in the flesh of Jesus Christ, um, radically transform the world, you know, in ways we can we can barely comprehend, you know, and, and that the uh, inauguration of the new covenant uh, that begins with uh, the um, in the manger uh, uh, elevates our vision, you know, to uh, to a pursuit of just um, unprecedented in human history. So. You know, for one thing, I I just see a a real connection between this passage and and St. Paul's heart and his his grasp of the incarnation. And just the radical uh, reorientation, in a way, of our our hearts and our aspirations that came with the coming of Christ.
0: What fascinates me about uh, passages like this from St. Paul, and we encounter this a lot in the letter of 1 Corinthians, is Paul begins by saying, "Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, yes, we don't know what they wrote. Right. You know, we don't know the questions or the situations specifically that they were dealing with. We can we see the reflection of it in some of Paul's writings. So we don't know exactly the problems or concerns he was writing to. Yet he responds and give us questions. He gives us answers." that deals specifically with the problems and concerns that we have now here almost 2000 years later yeah. from a different perspective right i mean different problems today probably than he was dealing with in a certain sense or are they the same and uh, in general and then to bring us then tr- as an introduction to this travis maybe share with the audience in an overview uh, you know, what do you think it was that paul was dealing with basically as he gave these answers to the Corinthians,
1: yeah. In this chapter, from you know the commentaries I've I've looked at on this, and I think from the interior context of the passage, um, it seems that uh, St. Paul is addressing uh, questions from members of the Church of Corinth regarding the um, the value of um, of you know celibacy chosen mm-hmm. for the kingdom of God and the value of of Christian marriage, and in some way, I think uh, Saint Paul makes it clear in, in the language he uses throughout the um, throughout this um, chapter that the answer he's giving is going to be clear, uh, clearing up these questions in an authoritative way. Um, he's giving both commandments of the Lord um, in verse ten, for example, where uh, Saint Paul makes it clear that his comments are a re- reiteration of Uh, infallible revelation of God through uh, the teaching of Christ. Uh, You can reference back to Mark chapter 10 Mm -hmm. on the indissolubility of marriage. And he also makes it clear when he is um, sharing his own personal counsel, um, his opinion, if you will, um, in one sense. For example, in verse 12, where he says, I say, um, I say, but not the Lord. And he does that a couple times in the passage where uh, Paul is uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, he is not enjoining a commandment of God uh, upon people that uh, must be um, assented to and obeyed uh, without question. Yeah. He's sharing his, his informed opinion, if, w- if you will. But what I, would, what I would say on that, and I think this is in line with um, the Church Father's commentary on this passage, that uh, even though St. Paul is sharing his opinion, in different parts of the passage where he says, this is, uh, I say this, you know, not necessarily a commandment of the Lord, but I say, um, I think it, to follow the guidance of the Church Fathers, we need to keep in mind that um, who's speaking here? <laughs> you know, this is St. Paul the Apostle. Um, this, is, this is not our, our friend over lunch who's just kind of giving their you know, theological opinion. I mean, this is, this is an apostle um, chosen by Christ on the road to Damascus, um, who saw Christ um, in a vision there and spent time with the Apostle Peter to learn the ways of the Apostles and, and furthermore who has uh, penned Scripture for us which we know from the teaching of the Catholic Church is um, by its very nature dual authorship also penned by God and therefore um, inspired and, and infallible without error. So uh, you know, to follow again the thinking of the Church Fathers and consensus on this point uh, though there are points in this passage where Paul shares his opinion, sometimes you will hear what I think is somewhat of a straw man argument saying that, well, wherever in Paul's letters, you know, he, he says, well, this is my opinion. There's sort of a, a sometimes there's a tendency to um, relegate, you know, Paul's opinion to a, a lower level of, you know, authority than, than that of Christ. But as we see even in the last verse of this passage at the very end, in 40, uh, verse 40, he says, um, I think that I have the Spirit of God, and um, well, all believers have the Spirit of God through baptism, right, as our, mm-hmm. as our Church teaches, but there's a way in which St. Paul as an apostle of Christ and an author of Scripture has the Spirit of God that um, very few others have, and so therefore any um, theological opinion advanced by uh, St. Paul in this passage, I believe, um, is part of that authoritative response. Um, to the questions offered by the Corinthians.
0: Yeah, and let me add to that. I Boy, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's important um, because when Paul was writing this letter to this church, you, you know, there's little evidence that he would have been thinking of this letter that he would have been holding in his hand and passing along in the way that we think of Scripture today. Um, and the idea that this letter was considered scripture the way we think of the Bible today didn't take its shape until towards the end of the 4th century when the canon was finally defined and during this period the first three, uh, almost 400 years these letters were gaining their authority as they were read in liturgy but what you're saying is important the issue here is not so much that it is in our Bible that we take it seriously, but that these are the words of St. Paul. That's a significance. And in Paul's letter to the second, to the Thessalonians, he, he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. And so what's being conveyed here in that context is he normally would like to be with them face to face as a bishop, uh, apostle on his authority in that sense helping them understand how to live out their baptismal faith normally he'd want to be there if he couldn't be there as in this occasion he writes a letter which is not his preference but he gives them some instruction because they wrote him a letter but it it, it carries the authority that it would have if he was there in person Right. and so this issue of I say this by way of concession verse 6 Reminds me a little bit of let me ask you this do we see in that the parallel to Moses hmm. making concessions because of the sinfulness of the people? Do you see that there?
1: Yeah, I actually thought of that um, that connection Marcus that you did in terms of uh concessions um, I say this by way of concession, not of command uh Paul says in, in verse 6 here, um, and again, he is, uh, he is making a distinction between, uh, you know, the, the command of Christ, the command of God that is evident, um, for example, a little bit later, yeah. after that verse on the teachings with um, divorce, you know, the indissoluble of marriage, um, what you're referring to is Exodus chapter 24, where um, Moses um, is sort of given the... Um, the uh, ability, the, the authority by God to to write um, legislation uh, for the uh, for God's people in Israel uh, that um, that mitigates the punishment that is due to them because of their human weakness. Yes. So uh, Moses, for example, allows in his in his concession uh, for divorce. Though Jesus makes clear in Matthew chapter nineteen that uh, uh, in verse seven that. Moses allowed made that uh, concession for the people of Israel on the basis of their, uh, of, of their hardness of heart, he calls it, or their, their weakness. Yeah. Um, in other words, uh, allowing people the opportunity to divorce rather than, let's say, being stuck in a union because their, their heart's being so hard that their only other option being to perhaps uh, murder their spouse with whom they're not happy. Perhaps Moses is giving a, a, another way out for, for folks who... Whose hearts are just uh, completely unconverted, you yeah. know, to the ways of God. But uh, as Jesus makes clear in Matthew 19, that that concession of Moses now has come to an end in the new covenant, since all all of God's people now have uh, a new power, a new strength available to them through the Holy Spirit received mm-hmm. in baptism and faith, um, to to live according, you know, to all of God's ways, and and so that. Uh, that, that concession of Moses, as Jesus says in Matthew 19, is is eliminated now. And Jesus reminds us of the original intention of, of marriage and the beauty of it and its um, indissolubility, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, its permanent union between the spouses too.
0: Because now report. we have the grace that we've received through our baptism and through the sacraments. We have the union that we experience with Christ in this intimate way through the sacraments, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, it doesn't mean, as some of our Protestant brothers and sisters say, that you know what we do is not... Imp- I mean, they don't really say this, but you know, you and I from our background know that people kind of put down works. We've been covered with this grace and justification. Well, that's not what he's talking about. Well, now we have the ability by grace to, be, to live a, a more holy life, and that's what we're called to, which is what this passage is dealing with. Let's take a break, Travis. I'd like to, to also address... Because you have a background both in Catholic and, and uh, evangelical training, uh, he's talking in this passage about the importance and the significance and the holiness of both marriage yeah. and celibacy. Right. But we live in a culture that doesn't seem to have a place for celibacy. Right. Talk about that, because that, from our background, both of you and I, from evangelicals, what did we deal with this issue of celibacy? Let's talk about that in the other end of the break. Great. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. And our guest today is Travis Lawmaster. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your Glo- global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com.
2: Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled, Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you too will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at one 800
0: Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. Today our guest is Travis Lawmaster and uh, he's calling us from the warm coast of California while we're here in the freezing tundra of central ohio and uh, while you're sitting back sipping a pina colada or whatever it is (laughs) while you're enjoying that uh, we're dealing with this passage which uh, has a very positive view of both singleness and marriage though we live in a culture that seems to have the only place for marriage what do you think travis
1: i agree and um, i I agree wholeheartedly what he said there marcus and Going back to the, uh, the recent feast that we've celebrated, in fact, the, the feast even this past Sunday in the Catholic Church of the, of the Holy Family, yep. Joseph and Mary, I think it's beautiful that that feast uh, is right upon the heels of, of the incarnation of our Lord. But you're right, Marcus, in this passage, if we, le- if we read all 40 verses, we see that Paul uh, is really addressing two sets of folks, and he, he has something to say to, uh, to the married and to the unmarried. Uh, in this passage, and um, and his teaching that comes forth for both groups really does uphold the beauty and the sanctity of both of those vocations. Yep. Um, I, I'd also add that the, the other set of, uh, I guess, contrasting groups that Paul addresses in this passage are believers and non-believers and, and, and what to do in situations involving them. But, um, but yeah, I, I think what we see here is um, what has become, uh, in the course of the history of the Church, um, a, a distinctly uh, Catholic uh, value, or, or let's say, a value of of those churches, uh, the Catholic and the Orthodox yep. traditions, where celibacy is uh, not only presented uh, to folks as a as a viable option, but a, but a laudable, a, pr- a praiseworthy um, course of of life uh, in in following of Jesus, following after his own example. Now, going back to the uh, mystery of of Christmas. Um, of course, what we see uniquely in Joseph and Mary's marriage is something very interesting, where they are really bringing both of those callings together in their own pursuit of God uh, in a very singular and unique way. I think to affirm, as you said, Marcus, the, the beauty of both vocations. Of course, right. Joseph and Mary enjoyed a um, a beautiful marriage as planned by God from the beginning, as Jesus says, were for the two to become one. However, within their marriage, they practice a very rare form of it, for the sake of the kingdom in that uh, it, was also, it, it also existed to help um, each of them uphold a vow of celibacy and virginity before God uh, for the sake of the kingdom. So both, uh, both voca- people in both vocations can look to Joseph and Mary as, as a light you know, uh, for them in, in how, to, uh, how to practice you know, their vocation in a way that leads to their uh, sanctification.
0: And in our culture, which this, this is one of the reasons I mentioned uh, in the in the upfront in the program is that we don't. I almost wish we had a copy of the letter that Paul had received um, so we could compare their questions and issues as they were trying to live out their faith in the context of a pagan society yeah. um, versus where we are today. And ask the question, which is more civilized? Because not only today do we live in a culture that um, in many ways doesn't have a place for a lifelong call to celibacy in our culture's view, right? Because uh, I remember when I was a single minister, Protestant minister, uh, my wife and I didn't meet until our our early 30s and then we were married uh, in our mid 30s so up until then I was a single Protestant minister and I can tell you there was a lot of pressure as if the only normal way for me as a Protestant minister was to be married with a family Yeah. And, but uh, even pushing it farther we have a culture where we have entire Christian denominations that are pushing aberrant lifestyles as if they are to be not only normal but if we stand up and speak against those, then we are chastised as intolerant. Yes. And I'm wondering, were those the questions they were dealing with then, or are we actually a bit less civilized today than they were 2,000 hmm. years ago?
1: Yes, I mean, that that very well could be. I, I One thing I can say uh, in a way is that the, both both of the ch- uh, church's teachings here that we're considering, both the church's teachings on the indissolubility of marriage, yes. without possibility of divorce, is radical and yeah. countercultural in our world today. And and secondly, the, the church's teaching of celibacy for the sake of a, a higher purpose for the kingdom of God is just as radical <laughs> and counterculture in our in our sex saturated culture, um, with you know with, I think that problem getting worse. Yeah. all the time around us I think uh, the church's teaching on both of those vocations is, is is very countercultural and 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 going back to a point you made a second ago in terms of the, the mindset of the Protestant world there there is no real uh, you know viable category for them usually for um, uh, you know celibacy chosen for the kingdom of God there are obviously uh, some Christians in those denominations will who will make that choice but as, as a norm or as you know, an established place uh, in those churches. We don't, we don't see that in the same way we'll see it in the um, Catholic priesthood or those who pursue religious life and vow of virginity before our Lord. So, this uh, this exhortation of Paul to imitate his own um, his own choice to remain single, he says, as I do in verse eight, uh, for the sake of the kingdom, is even vis a vis, you know the. Protestant practice of Christianity quite radical and just to, to pull in a little piece from history um, you know as we as we know the history of the Protestant Reformation and some of the choices that uh, Martin Luther made mm-hmm. um, you know in his in his establishment of of a new direction for himself and you know for for those who would follow him after um, we, we know that he uh, was not was not a strong value for him you know in, in his later yeah. days yeah. and and
0: which is actually true of all well all the reformers most almost all the reformers were priests and very quickly after all of them went into essentially rebellion very quickly almost all of them got married
1: yeah that that's correct and so, so along with the priesthood and the yeah. and the mass the sacraments uh, respect for the, the authority of the, the papacy, celibacy was one of those things that, as you said, Marcus, just immediately disappeared um, on the radar for, for those folks. And in response to the Protestant Reformation, of course, we had the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and its, its primary vehicle was the uh, Council of Trent, an ecumenical council of bishops, to, uh, to set the record straight on doctrine and truth and to remind Catholics of uh, what, what the tradition had, in fact, taught for, for 1,500 years up to that point. And in one of the sessions at the Council of Trent, uh, session 14 in 1563, um, the, the council had, had certain things to say about uh, the sacrament of marriage. And in response to this uh, disavowal of the Protestants of the virtue of celibacy, uh, this session said, quote, if anyone says that the married state is to be preferred, to the state of virginity or celibacy, and that it is not better and happier to remain in virginity or celibacy than to be united in matrimony. And then they give a quick reference to Matthew 19.11 there in 1 Corinthians 7.25. Let him be anathema. So what the Council was trying to do in that statement, I believe, in in an infallible way, was to uh, prevent um, the proliferation, further proliferation of a false teaching that uh, somehow marriage uh, was superior to the choice of celibacy for the kingdom, or you might even say uh, was even equal to it. Um, and, and I also believe that's what Paul, that's the balance that Paul provides for us between the vocations in 1 Corinthians 7. And in fact, I think um, it's, it's the balance that Christ himself provides in, in Matthew 19, that in some way, uh, it is better and happier, as Paul says, according to his example, to remain single as he does. In fact, he says, he even uses the word better uh, and happier, or the words better and happier in the last couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 7. He says uh, in verse 38, so that he who marries his betrothed does well. And I'll get back to that in a second. Yep. But he who refrains from marriage will do better. And uh, a couple of verses later, he says... Um, if the husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as he is. Now he's speaking about a widow who's lost her husband. And he says, "While well, she's free to marry, and she does well if she marries. She's happier if she remains as she is. And that's where he closes it off with, I think that I have the Spirit of God, um, as, he, as he shares this opinion mm-hmm. of his. We talked about that earlier. Now, Now, what I want to point out, and I think the Church Fathers in commenting on on this passage, in particular, in this question of the relative superiority of virginity um, to to marriage, I think we we need to be very clear uh, that um, in praising celibacy as a, a better and happier form of life for for man's end, and I'll talk about that in a second. What in what sense, you know, is Paul saying it's better and happier? But in praising the one, we're not we're not thereby um, denouncing the other. Okay, so by by praising the Uh, The calling to uh, virginity, we are in no way um, degrading the the beautiful and good call of marriage. Paul says a couple times in this passage, he who marries does well. And uh, the Virgin Mary and and, and Joseph and their marriage sanctify that institution that God establishes a good thing uh, in the beginning, as Jesus says, as as a way of holiness, a way of sanctification for, frankly, for most people in the world, Mm -hmm. as most don't receive the grace and calling to uh, celibacy. So to, to praise the one is, is in no way to um, degrade marriage. And I, I just made a list of a couple things here, things that Paul does in this passage and Paul does not do. One of the things that Paul does not do in this passage, nor does the Council of Trent do in that statement I read, is it does not, it does not intend to degrade marriage or lower it in any way. Um, the goodness of marriage has always been upheld by the church from, you know, from the time of when the scriptures were written to the present. And I think we need to we we need to keep that uh, in mind. Another thing that I think is important to add right there is that Paul is not intending, as he says in verse 35, to lay any restraint upon uh, his his audience. Uh, in other words, um, Paul understands that uh, one's choice in a state of life is a is a personal matter between them and the Lord, and it's a it's a it's a personal calling tailored to the to the gifts and the ability and the you know that really the destiny God has for each person, and each person needs to discern that calling prayerfully, you know, with God and and hopefully with very good, spiritual direction in the context of a of a sacramental life. You know, in union with the church.
0: And, um, and you know, let me just throw in there, Travis. That, yeah. That's very interesting. You point those out because in the history of, of non-Protestant Christianity, you see the ex- the other extremes have happened, where one the reformers, particularly often uh, raised marriage superior over above celibacy, degraded the idea of celibacy. And on top of that, you see a lot of especially authoritative type Christian sects who believed, as they abandoned, of course, the authentic authority of the Catholic Church, who believed that they had the authority to choose whom their members should or should not marry.
1: Right. hmm and to the point where the Gnostics, for example, the, the earliest uh, heresies in the church forbade marriage uh, because of the uh, the unfortunate um, invasion of the Manichaean mm-hmm. error mm-hmm. into their into their theology, which is that um, somehow the the things of this world, you know, the things that are uh, pertain primarily to our bodies and the material world, and including marriage and marital relations, are somehow defiled um, as being part of uh, you know the the lower world, and and what one needs to do is to escape the lower world to achieve a, a purely spiritual existence is to renounce all things uh, material. And there have been uh, all kinds of heresies throughout church history, in in the Middle Ages, for example, where uh, uh, enforced poverty, material poverty, was enforced upon its members uh, to uh, to an extreme uh, that was out you know outside of the the mainstream of the church's teaching. Uh, at other times, it's been uh, an overemphasis on, on celibacy without regard to as I think St. Paul makes very clear here the, the special gift given the special grace that's needed to live it uh, and Paul really um, you know, uh, provides protection from that error I think in this passage where he says uh, frankly you know, if, if one uh, understands oneself and one is not able uh, to embark upon this particular vocation and calling one should uh, certainly not, you know, not do so and that they should uh, enjoy the good of marriage that God has made available to them in in that you know in their particular condition. So I think Scripture you know always does provide the the antidote to these errors. Um, but what I what I would propose is that you know on the other side of that coin, and I think as we were saying earlier, um, in in this current con- in the current context we're in in our world and the oversaturation of of sex is where sex is in many ways become uh, an idol, an idol of the culture, an idolatry that uh, many pursue. That that I think Paul's Paul's words about uh, the the excellence of of virginity and, and the way in which it is better than marriage in some ways uh, need to be uh, looked at. And, and, and it does constitute a very uh, countercultural and radical call. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk about that point uh, for a moment. You know, in what sense you know does Paul mean that uh, it is uh, better and happier to remain as he is, as he said, and to remain mm-hmm. single. Well, you know, he does mention in verse 32, for example, that I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And then he goes ahead and repeats the teaching for the woman. So he's making the same point again in the next few mm-hmm. lines, but just addressing it to the woman instead of the man there. Um, that comes in, the, in a section of this passage where Paul is talking about worldly troubles, and he's talking about the time growing very short. Mm-hmm. Now, many commentators will say that Paul has an eschatology in mind that um, didn't perhaps pan out <laughs> the way he was expecting, namely that yeah. Jesus Christ would come a second time during his own lifetime. Uh, the perusia of our Lord, the second coming, would take place before Paul um, saw physical death, um, that that it's very possible that that uh, eschatology was in Paul's mind. And when he said the the time is short, you know, live as though you're not living in the world because Jesus is coming back soon and we will all join him for our heavenly existence. Well, um, I would say that, you know, clearly Jesus did not come uh, in that first generation of uh, the church, the first century of the church. But there's a way in which Paul's words, despite the fact that the eschatology... Eschaton did not occur, um, still apply, you know, to to us. I mean, as we see in the Old Testament, the time appointed to us um, upon this earth is relatively short. You know, the the longest living of us have about a hundred years um, at the most to really um, prepare for that uh, beatific vision with God, and that, in fact, is is the vision that Paul has in mind when he says um, this. Basically, this world is a preparation for the next. And picking up on that, you know, the Church Fathers and Saint Thomas Aquinas, for example, in the Summa Theologica, in their discussion of the contemplative life, the life of prayer and the life of meditation upon the truth of God and the beauty of God that will be uh, consummated and fulfilled in our beatific vision of God in heaven. Uh, the contemplative life is really a preparation for our souls. Uh, for that encounter with God, which is what ultimately, as Aquinas says, we were made for. And there's a consistent uh, stream of thought in in the patristic church, in the early church, in the medieval church, uh, and into the early modern church of of um, just a, a freeness for them to say that, as, as Aquinas says in, uh, I think it's question 182 of the second part of the second part of his Summa, that the um, contemplative life or the life of prayer is, is more excellent. It's, it's superior yeah. to the act of life. And he, he, roughly speaking, attributes uh, the love of God and, you know, and the life of, as Paul says in this passage, you know, uh, focusing in a single-minded way on the things of the Lord, um, this, this life of primarily prayer and then service and love that flows from prayer, um, is superior to the act of life which we're also called to, um, which is love of neighbor, uh, primarily as, as Aquinas and the fathers say. And so when Paul says this life is better, what he's saying is that, you know, we're, we're called to both. We're called to love God and love our neighbor. But there's a way in which uh, love of God is primary. And, uh, and, and our love of neighbor is really built upon our prayer life. It's built upon our love for God and the time we're able to spend with God mm-hmm. so that out of the abundance of that union with God that we can achieve in this life, and some saints have guided us all the way up to what they call transforming union with God, and Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and other mystics, but that our, our love of neighbor is perfected uh, to the extent that our love of God uh, increases in, and moves towards perfection. So that balance of, you know, um, putting the contemplative life as primary over the active life, I'd say, Marcus, that that might be another shift yeah. we've seen in the modern world, where we don't hear that very much uh, anymore, um, I mean, we do, but we um, maybe in some ways, uh, some of the focus has turned to how to, you know, how to perfect our active life and our love of our neighbor, and that's also very important. You know, it is important for us to, uh, to, to look at how we can, oh, uh, for example, improve marriage. There's yeah. some beautiful teaching in the church in the 20th century and even up to the present on um, how to tap into the riches of sacramental. A union with our spouse and our, and our families, and and how to perfect our our living of that vocation in a way that glorifies God and transforms the world even more. We've seen some beautiful things uh, well, come
0: forth. I was going to say, certainly in uh, coming out of the twentieth century, in the twenty first, the, uh, whether it's the devil or just ourselves that have so increased all the conflicts in our life, filling our time. Uh, So this idea of taking space for contemplation becomes more difficult and difficult. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, uh, two things I'd like you to do because obviously we can't cover everything in the passage. One, of course, I want you to talk a little bit about your your ministry, Mm -hmm. you know, love pure and true. Make sure you let the audience know a little bit about that. But also, I'm thinking about verses 7 through 9. In other words, how does a person discern Because Paul says, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that as well for them to remain single as I do. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. In those verses, we kind of have both almost seemingly opposite criteria for determining is it. God's call that I'm trying to discern or do I look at whether I can control my passions or not to determine which life God is cho- calling me to live. You see where I'm getting at? Yes. When we get back from the break I'd like to address that. Okay. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host Marcus Grody. I'm joined today by Travis Lawmaster. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your Global Catholic Radio Network.
2: Please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at
0: 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Travis Lawmaster. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 7. Travis, we've got just a couple minutes. Um, how does one discern and choose which of those two ways of life they are to live?
1: That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. Um, and all, you know, hopefully all of us have wrestled with that in a prayerful way ourselves. Uh, I, you know, Marcus, I'd, I'd remind us that, again, in this passage, um, St. Paul is addressing both the married and the unmarried, and this mm-hmm. question we're raising right now, of course, would be to those who uh, find themselves unmarried and with the, um, with the option, you know, yeah. choosing either the beautiful sacrament of married life or, um, as St. Paul says, the even better and more beautiful option of a life of consecrated virginity to God for the sake of the kingdom. I think um, when anybody, and I've been working with college students for the last almost 20 years now, and so my audience, so to speak, has primarily <laughs> been this unmarried set yeah. of folks in my ministry. So this question comes up a lot, and I was just sharing Few days ago, with a student about this, uh, Father Michael Scanlon, who's the um, former president of Franciscan University, a wonderful Franciscan priest, has written a very helpful book um, to that many Catholics may want to pick up as a tool for discerning God's call and will in your life. And it's yeah. called "What Does God Want?" And I think that's a great title because that's really the question we're asking: is yeah. you know not so much what what do I want to do with my life, but what does God want for my life what is his will for my vocation and how am i to image his um, presence in this world and in the book uh, father mike uh scanling gives uh, five five tests and i uh, clearly don't have time right now to go right. through all of them i'll just i'll just say what they are They're called the five c's of discerning god's will number one he says uh, we apply the conformity test is my proposed path and let's say in this case my proposed vocation in conformity with how the church is taught throughout the ages, both in scripture and tradition. Is my proposed plan of action going to conflict in any way with what uh, has been revealed by God authoritatively by the church? So all of our actions that please God of course yeah. need to agree with you know, the laws of God as he's, he's revealed them. Number two, um, Father Michael encourages us to ask, is, is my path um, is it uh, leading to my conversion? The conversion test. Uh, does this proposed path uh, put me in a place, uh, my personal relationship with God, that's going to further my conversion as he's begun into in my life? And along those lines, number three, is this path consistent with ways that God has spoken to me and led me in the past? You know, does it agree with how events have led up to this moment of decision for me? And I see a path of growing conversion and holiness and consistency there. So number three is the consistency. There. Number four is confirmation. Is God confirming this call in my life through other signs? What is my spiritual director saying? What um, what jumps to my mind as I as I read through Scripture? What am I hearing in sermons? What am I hearing from friends and family that know me well? Is God's call being confirmed? And then finally, conviction—the ultimate test—is in prayer. Is God calling me to this or that vocation? We can only know that through the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding that's in our hearts.
0: Travis. Thank you so much for sharing this. Those of you listening, I'm going to put those five up on the website, deepinscripture.com, just so if you don't catch them, you can uh, check them. Travis, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And all of you, thank you for joining us. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. God bless. Talk to you again next week.